Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Off the Dome Radio. We have an exciting guest for you today, Dr. Adarsh Mudgill, at Dr. underscore Mudgill. That's D-R underscore M-U-D-G-I-L on Instagram. Dude is a machine. He's a dermatologist and dermatopathologist from New York City, also host of the Dr. Mudgill podcast. He provides a, a bunch of helpful and engaging information and content on all platforms, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, iTunes. The man is doing it all. So we got into uh, some deep dives with him. Super fun. Uh, we had never met him before, so it was also a good time just getting to know him on, on a first, uh, first-time basis as well. So we start out with his background, how he started... Um, the, the route of being a doctor, especially dermatology, and he talks about a plateau that he had uh, in life and how he overcame that. He got too comfortable and realized that he had to make some other changes to keep pushing the bar higher and higher. Then he gets into his meeting with uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. So those that know Gary V, he went to one of his 4D um, days at the office in Manhattan. So he talks about that, super exciting stuff there. And then he got into the influence that his mother had on him. His mother raised him uh, and his brother. His brother's also a practitioner as well. Um, So they both got that from their mom. He gets into his mindset uh, of being an entrepreneur, where that came from, and what it looked like when he started his first private practice in New York City. Tim, what uh, do you think of Dr. Mudgill? I, I love this, man. He had so much energy, dude. Yeah, truly, uh, truly inspirational guy. Just talking about how he, I mean, satisfied with his professional life, but take it to another level by putting out content mm-hmm. through through various social media profiles and starting a podcast. And def- Gary Vaynerchuk definitely had a big impact on him. 100%. So, yeah, he talks about what his biggest challenges were when he first started his business. Uh, he also talks about nutrition and how that's impacted both his professional and his personal life. He talks about just his transformation in the past five years, um, thanks to go- going all in on that. Uh, and then he also goes into how he has achieved growth on social media. Uh, I think he said when he first started early 2018, he gave himself the goal that he's going to post on social media every day. And so now he's up to, I think, 144,000 followers on Instagram is what I checked. So I kind of ask him. What was key in building that? Um, and he shares a little bit of that. And then Dr. Mudgill is also recognized as a Castle Connolly top doc, as well as a New York Times super doc. So we ask him to end the show, how did he separate himself from other doc- doctors? How did he make the way he provides his service unique uh, with the way he interacts with patients? So he shares that. Uh, so without further ado, I know you guys are going to get a lot of value from this episode. Episode 89, Dr. Adarsh B.J. Mudgill. Yeah, man. Thank you again for, for joining us. If you wouldn't mind just giving a quick uh, kind of background, introduction of yourself for our listeners, um, people who don't know you, what you do, um, and then we'll go from there. Cool, man. Yeah, so uh, my name is Adarsh Mudgill. I'm a dermatologist and dermatopathologist based in New York City and Long Island. And, uh, you know, I've been really working very, very hard on my social media stuff in the last like, year and a half, which is, I think, how you guys came to mm-hmm. find me. Is that how you found me? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, so we'll get into all, get into all that stuff. But, um, you know, I, I have a podcast also. And, you know, my podcast features like Hustling Red Sword, very similar to your podcast. And, you know, obviously I love my career as a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist, but 
I got to a point in my career where, you know, I guess I quote unquote, like for lack of a better phrase, I arrived, you know, like I thought I basically achieved my goal of having like a successful practice in New York city and like, you know, kind of be one of the top docs in town. And, uh, I was like, I was 42 years old at the time, 41 or 42 years old. And, you know, I had grinded so long to get there. I was kind of lost for a few months and, you know, I was like the point in life where, you know, what I thought like growing up was what success was all about, you know, like having nice cars and a nice house and being able to play golf all the time. So one of you guys plays golf. So I guess it's nice. Oh, I, I try to get out multiple times a week, man. Successful week. Yeah. I can get two, two rounds in a week. Yeah. There was like a summer where it was like summer 2017 where I had my two offices going. I had a bunch of docs, a couple of docs working for me, a PA, a couple of PAs working for me. And, uh, you know, like financially, everything was sort of self-sufficient. I was, you know, things, things were good. But it was for that, that period was a very, um, it was kind of a very empty period for me, like those, those months. And in the beginning, it was great. I was playing golf like four or five times a week. I was still working hard. I was able to like do working out, do all the things that I love doing, getting it all done. But I was just living on this plateau, and you know that kind of sucked because little things started falling apart around me. Nothing terrible, man. I was having some staffing issues in my New York City office, and you know just like little things forced me to kind of look within and, and ask myself, hey, like, like why is this happening? Like, why am I not like super psyched right now to be living this life that I thought? I was like, you know, working so hard to live. And, um, you know, I, I started like, trying to figure out like, what exactly is it that I want to do, you know? So initially it was like to build these practice, build a practice in New York City, which is like the most competitive market in the world for dermatology and, you know, for doctors in general. I kind of you know, climbed my way up to the top of that. It was one of the, you know, still and hopefully considered one of the top dermatologists in New York City. Um, and then I opened up another office on Long Island. So I had two offices and, you know, I'm a dermatologist, which is a pretty tough field to get into in medicine. And, you know, I accomplished that and had these great practices. I'm also a dermatopathologist, so I do, like, two things. And I have, you know, multiple, um, you know, multiple things going on professionally. Um, but for some reason, like, you know, when I got to that stage of all of these things sort of being in sync and, like, you know, things were kind of cruising, and I could have just floated on that plateau, you know, you know, indefinitely, I guess. But just didn't feel right, you know. And... Um, I really like, you know, I love like guys like The Rock and, you know, just guys who are like really kind of pushing to the next level when they reach a plateau. You know, like The Rock was a great college football player and then he was like a professional wrestler and then like and I was the biggest actor in the world. And, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is really a very similar sort of story, you know, like where you've kind of achieved a tremendous level of success, but there's still something like burning inside of you, like where like shit, like, you know, what else am I capable of doing? And, you know, I was coasting for those few months, and I think a lot of that was sort of a reset period for me of trying to figure out, okay, like, I'm here, like, now what the fuck do I do? You know, because I just couldn't live existing on that plateau. It was just so unfulfilling, you know? So one of the things that I realized when I was, like, taking a look within, like, what I, what, what I want to do, and, you know, I've had, like, throughout my life, I've, I've had a bunch of, like, really transformative experiences where I was sort of pushed past the potential I thought I had, you know? And then like, you sort of like break through at a new brand, like, oh shit, you know, like, you know, now, now what can I do, you know? Yeah. And so you know, those, those types of events in life are very self-empowering, you know? Because it's, it's, it's like, you know, you have to, you know, you have to get these like little tiny wins that build up and you finally get to like your goal. 
And then you push past that a little bit and it's like really like, wow, like, you know, I mean, humans are amazing. You know, there's so much, I'm sure you guys like love like David Goggins and, you know, like figures yeah. like that. There's so much untapped potential. Like, you know, David Goggins' whole thing is that we only use 40% of what we're capable of doing. So when you get to like 45%, you're like, oh shit, like, you know, not, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. And like during that stage, which is the summer of 2017, I, you know, for me, I figured out that I obviously didn't want to exist on a plateau of just coasting. And, you know, I was, had to think like, what is it I want to do? And, you know, really what I want to do is use the stories, my personal stories that have been incredibly transformative and empowering for me to achieve my potential to help others do the same. You know, like I'm a big believer that if I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, mm-hmm. you got to work your fucking ass off and, you know, grind and, you know, get up early in the morning, work till late at night. Um, but you can do it. You know, it's just, it's your mindset has to be there and enable you to do it. And around that time, I was talking to one of my buddies who was a really successful entrepreneur. And I was like, you know, talking to him about the shit that was going on in my office and like the, my goals, you know, uh, like, you know, wanting to inspire and touch more people. And he gave, and I said, dude, give me like a few books to read. You know, at one point in my life, I was like a very avid reader. And working my practices, being married, having three kids, you know, all that stuff, there's just no time to really invest in yourself to like, you know, read and, you know, it, it's, it's almost indulgent, you know, because you have so much shit going on. Yeah. But he gave me five books. It's like the classic five, you know, business books. And one of the books was The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, uh, The 10X Rule by Grant Cardone. Mm. The one thing, I forget who the author of that is, um, Four Hour Work Week, Tim Ferriss, okay. and uh, Crushing It by Gary Vee. And so a good one. of all those books, like Crushing It really inspired me. You know, I mean, they all were amazing. I got something amazing from each one of those books. But Crushing it, basically, you know, if you, I'm sure you guys have read it or know of it, it's, mm. it's basically the power of social media to achieve whatever your goal is. You know, I mean, everything is so accessible now. And, you know, there's, there's you know, through social media, you can reach just so many people. So I was like, all right, you know, like this was probably at this point, February of 2018. And I said to myself, I'm going to post to Instagram every single day. And so I started just posting. I, was, I, was, I used to edit my own posts and, you know, posting whatever stupid shit I, you know, <laughs> that I was up to, you know, whether it was like working out or hanging out with my kids or like work-related stuff. And they were very unsophisticated posts, and, but I'd post every day. Like I wouldn't, in my mind, I said, this is my goal. I'm going to post to Instagram every single day. And I haven't missed a day in like, or 19, 20 months. I post like mm. every single day. Wow. My operations got much more sophisticated like, as that time has gone on. And then one of the things, you know, I'm being like sort of a Gary V, you know, I'm basically consuming a lot of Gary V's content. And I went to one of those four D sessions that he has oh, in May really? of 2018, okay. which was awesome. Gary it was really amazing. It was an amazing experience, you know, and it was, it's expensive, but it was money well spent. Mm-hmm. It's a really exhausting day. Like you're there all day and you're basically each, each one of the sessions is like with eight or 10 entrepreneurs. So there are eight other entrepreneurs that were there with me. And like, there were some real legit entrepreneurs. I mean, like, you know, you, there's a round table that you have with Gary and you go around that room and you know, everyone says kind of like what they want to do. So like, you know, like my tagline was like, I want to be like an Indian Tony Robbins, you know, it's fine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which I, it's funny because I was actually embarrassed saying that, but the night before you meet all the other entrepreneurs to meet for some beers and, you know, just get to know everybody. And, and one of Gary's main guys, guy Nick Dio, who's on my podcast, he was like, he, we were just bullshitting and having some drinks. I said, you know, I said to him in a casual conversation that I want to be like in you, Tony Robbins, you know? So we're in the round table around Gary, and I was like kind of like pussyfooting around actually saying that, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, 
But uh, but Nick is in the room, and Nick's like, dude, just tell me what you said last night. And so I was like, all right, you know, I want to be the big twenty rounds. And um, so, but it's funny because Gary was basically like, you get everyone advice, and you know, back to what I was saying, the other people in the room were very intimidating entrepreneurs. Because you go around the room, basically say what you want to do. I think the other people in the room were like, yeah, you know, I sold my company for like fifty million bucks, and I sold my next company for like hundred million bucks, and wow, entrepreneurs. I mean, I remember I was like, shit, what the fuck am I doing I'm in this room with him? He's like, which But the cool thing about it was, you know, everyone had their own reason for being there, right? And for me, it was just kind of like, I wanted to learn more about using social media and kind of seeing how Gary's operation works. And one of the things that he said there was, you know, you guys should, he's like, no one is going to do what I'm telling you to do. He's like, you guys should post to Instagram, you should start a YouTube channel, you should start a podcast, you should basically create content for all of the different mediums that are out there and just keep pushing it. You know, more, 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 more is better. And, uh, you know, for me, when someone says, like, no one is going to do it, you know, I'm like, I'm going to fuck you. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> I like that. So I literally, I started a podcast. I started a YouTube channel. And now it's been, like, you know, and since, I've been doing it basically since then, since, like, May of 2018, like, just falls to the wall with everything that we do with social media. I have a full-time videographer. Well, one of the things Gary said to me is like, you need to hire a full-time videographer if you're doing all your own shit, to resources mm-hmm. to deploy for that. So that's, I literally, the next day, I put that on a Craigslist and I hired a videographer. <laughs> and, you know, then but it's sort of just grown from there. That was about that, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's great. Was, uh, was the 4D session, was that at his headquarters, VaynerMedia, in New York Yeah, City? so my main office is in Manhattan, so it was very easy for me to go there. And they have uh-huh. one of them, which timing-wise was like very, you know, it was perfect for me. It was on yeah. a Tuesday, consultations on Tuesdays, and it, you know, everything was kind of, the stars were aligned. Yeah, so. that's perfect. Did you get to spend any uh, one-on-one time with Gary, or was it just the, the round table? Not really. It's, a, it's around the round table, you know, but it's pretty intimate, man. Like, it's yeah. pretty intimate. He's very impressive. For, he's a yeah. very impressive man in person. Like, you know, obviously, he's like, when you watch all the shit on Instagram and, you know, whatever else you consume his content, but it's a different level when he's, like, sitting in front of you. You know, it's, it's, he's a really, really very bright guy. Um, yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause I know I, I watched a lot of his content and I've watched one of his YouTube videos with one of those sessions at the round table. And I had yeah. no idea that you were in on that. That's so awesome. Well, that the cool thing is if you listen to his, um, what is it? The thing that he, what was it? The daily beat? The daily beat from new year's Eve of 2018, like going into 2019. Okay. It's my 4d session. And at that point I had put out so much content that they actually gave me a shout out at the end of it. Like, really? Like, yeah, it was really cool. That's it's actually awesome. on my Instagram. You got to go on Gary's page and find it too. But it's yeah. pretty cool. I wonder yeah. if we could like rip a clip and just yeah, have, sure. have Doc on there and just, yeah. Yeah, so at the end, they're like, you know, we're going to give a shout out to Dr. Mudgill, who's the dermatologist in the room. And it was pretty cool. You know, it was, like, it was validating. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Now we can be like, yeah. hey, we know him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you said you had quite a few transformational experiences up to this point. Would you consider that one of them? Or, or were there some other things that like really kind of. Uh, it's really it's interesting. I mean, that's a great question, man. Um, you know, I'm kind of like at the point now, I'm 44, and I know like now, just from having grinded so hard for so many years, that if I. I want to do something like I'm not afraid of the grind to get there. So I was actually thinking about this. I was going to, I was kind of look through my credit card statement before we had the podcast. Cause there was a dinner that I was at with uh, my wife and 
and my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And this was like, it must have been around like April or maybe it was around April or May of 2018, like right around the time I did the Gary Vee thing. And, you know, we were at like dinner and I was, we were just kind of bullshitting and talking about like what our, you know, goals are and you know, what we want to do. And I said at that point, at that dinner, I said, you know, I, I want to become an Instagram celebrity, a verified Instagram and, you know, increase my following there. And I probably have like five, 500 or a thousand or maybe like 2000 followers or something at that point, nothing significant. But I'd already started posting every day, you know, and I was doing all the content myself. That was before I had like the sophisticated operation. But in my mind, I knew I didn't know if it was going to take five years, two years, a year, you know. But I knew like once I once you say it and you put it out there into the universe, it almost makes you accountable to it, right? Because I think most of the people who know me well know that if I say I'm going to do something, like, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it. Like, I'm not going to just say, it, but, all right, let's move on to the next thing. Because I'm, ser- I'm pretty serious like, about shit, the shit that I say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but, but by saying it, I make myself accountable to it. So like one of the things with Instagram, for instance, like my, I post, you know, when I said I'm going to start with Instagram, this was like, you know, a year and a half or almost, you know, close to, close to two years. I said I'm going to post every day. But by saying that, it like I'm posting every day, no matter what, because I've said it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Almost this like internal accountability that I have by telling other people that that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And have you always had that internal accountability? When when did that uh, first get instilled inside you? Like, look, I'm in the process of writing a book right now, and like, you know, like so a lot of it's like looking back at like you know, what you were like as a kid. It's almost like therapy in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had bits and pieces of it, and there have been times in my life where I've you know, done more than I thought I was capable of doing by, you know, putting it out into the universe and like expecting it of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm a lot more confident in that now, just knowing that it really is like loving and trusting and embracing the process to whatever your goal is that, you know, you can do like, you know, I know I can do it. Anyone can do it. You know, it's not, there's no like magic formula. It's just fucking doing, <laughs> you know, I like weighing that when my trainer gave me this great he told me this great quote like uh, will smith i think said this where you know like, to build a brick wall every day just focus on laying one perfect brick a day he's like if you do that every day after like a year or two you're gonna have a perfect brick wall you know <laughs> so really my mind is like all right just lay that perfect brick you know lay that perfect brick every day and you know keep laying perfect bricks it should happen. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Will Smith taking over the internet. He's got another saying everything uh, good's on the, uh, he's like, everything good is on the other side of fear. And I've heard him talk. Yeah. He's like, fear is not real. Danger is real. He's like, there's right. danger out there. Fear is not real. Like it's, yeah. we make fear. And so it's like, man. And then, so it's like, maybe it's scary starting a podcast. Like we were like, Oh, we got to be good. And it's like, now it's just, that's ah, another episode. And then people are like, how do yeah. you, like give away like vulnerable stuff, like about a relationship or you fucked up. It was like, cause another episode, man. And it's honesty. Like that's yeah. going to win. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys have 88, 89 podcasts or something like that. I saw. Yeah. Yeah. So I think tomorrow's 88. So it's like, we haven't been in it for a long time, but we're, we're just trying to be consistent. Um, that's it, then. so, uh, were your parents very entrepreneurial or did you kind of <laughs> just, yeah, totally averse to being entrepreneurial. Um, okay. 
I basically, my mom and dad got divorced when I was like a year old or so. Uh, so I have no contact with my dad. Never had him. Haven't known him. Never met him. Know nothing about him. Um, and my mom was is uh, an amazing woman. Like my first podcast is with my mom. You guys should check it out. Like she's, oh, sick. Okay. Uh, but so it was me and my brother, who's seven years older than me, and um, she was a government doctor. So she was a doctor, but for her, being a doctor was what enabled her to raise two boys on her own. You know, and this was I'm talking about like the seventies and eighties. You know, that it was there were not a lot of you know not tons of especially in the Indian community there were like zero single moms. But it was like you know it was it was really she had a very very tough life. You know, but for her being a doctor is what enabled her to raise her two boys. You know, so we had a very very humble upbringing. When I was my very very early years, there were nine of us living in a three bedroom apartment in like projects in Brooklyn. Uh, but you know, those are some of my fondest times. Like looking back at it, I didn't know any different. My mom brought everyone over from India, and each nuclear family had one of the bedrooms. So it was like me and my brother and my mom in one room. It was my uncle and my granddad in another room. It was my two aunts and my cousin and my grandma in the third room. And you know, we all like, lived together, and it was cool. You know, but I was only there until I was six. My brother was there until he was thirteen. But when my brother was thirteen, it was time. You know, it was kid from high school, and the schools there were pretty shitty. So my mom was just looking at various suburbs that had good schools for us to move to. So we moved to a town on the South Shore of Long Island called Oceanside, which is a, it's a very regular, you know, it's like a very regular blue collar town. Um, nothing fancy about it. It's a great place to grow up. But at that time, there were like no Indian kids that were living there. So there was like a, it's, it, was a it was like, you know, looking back at it. And, you know, as a kid, you don't really absorb these things to the level of what they were. But there's like a lot of racism, a lot of bullying, like, you know, a lot of stuff. And, but that being said, like, I don't have anything bad to really say. It was just the shit that kids do, you know, like, get beat up in the bus stop. It's one of the things that, that happens growing up, you know. But looking back at it, it's like, yeah, you know, my kids would never have to endure that because everything is so much more PC and, you know, <laughs> it's not cool anymore, you know. But back then, you know, whatever. Um, but, um, so my mom, because of that, and she had a very steady job, very, you know, modest income, but enough to like raise us and, you know, um, and she really pushed us to go into medicine, but she was very, very averse to being entrepreneurial because for her, it's like, you have to stand on your own two feet and you need to get steady paychecks and know what's coming in and really was very risk averse, you know, just, which is understandable, you know, like, you know, she's already taken enough risk by getting divorced and having a family that she has to support on her own, but she didn't want to assume any more risk by starting a business, which, you know, it's assuming a lot of risk. So my brother, who's seven years older than me, he's also a physician. My mom basically said to us, there's no choice. Like, you guys are being, you guys are doctors. That's it. Doctors. <laughs> I, I mean, she, she was dead serious. Like, my brother wanted to go to law school when he was in college. Yeah. And she said, yeah, no problem. But, you know, you just have to go to medical school first. Oh, she was, <laughs> So for me, there was also no choice. It was just that kind of drilled into us. And, and then when we, my brother graduated, he was like working on faculty for a while at like various hospitals. And then he wanted to start his own practice. And but my, his wife is, comes from a much more entrepreneurial family. So she was really encouraging him to hang on a shingle and start his own business. And, uh, you know, my mom discouraged him from doing it. You know, she said, I don't know if that's a great idea. You have a good job already. You know, but he did it and he's very successful and, you know, has no regrets. Similar thing for me. I think my, my brother kind of softened the blow to my mom like when I wanted to start my own practice. I always knew, like, I'm not really very employable. Like, I, I just, I, I have to work for myself. You know, I'm just kind of, 
And I realized that along the way, you know, I always envisioned having my own business. Um, I am like very set in the way that I want things. And I did work for another office and I worked for a lab. So I did, you know, I, I sort of have two board certifications. Um, but I thought, I thought I was going to do that for a few years after I finished my training, but that lasted like 10 months. <laughs> and I just basically assumed that I literally, this was right before the market crash in 2008. And my wife is also very, she comes from a very entrepreneurial family. So she was very encouraging. I had a newborn and um, I don't come from money. So I had like really no financial backing, but I borrowed a million bucks from the bank. Oh, wow. With no money, you know, but you could do that back then. It was right before the market crash. As a doctor, it was not as difficult to borrow money. I mean, now it's impossible to borrow money. But I was broke as a joke, was literally over a million dollars in debt. And I started my practice in New York City. And also, but I, again, it was, I knew it was going to work. Like, I just, you know, but, it, but it's obviously so stressful. Like, you know, everything goes over budget. And, you end up opening up like months later than you anticipated, you know, basically floating, um, you know, all the construction and like, you're not making money from your practice. You're still building it out. So I just, my friends always like make a joke that at that time I literally used to meet up for like beers or hang out. All I used to say was like, how's it going? I'm like, oh, I'm just fucking hemorrhaging money. Man. I'm hemorrhaging. <laughs> and I, I, it was like stressful because I don't have money. You know, like I didn't have money. Like I was going to bill me out, you know? Right. Uh, but yeah, but you know, I, I don't come from an entrepreneurial background. I personally was always a little bit entrepreneurial though. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, growing up, I didn't have any fucking money. My mom didn't give me an allowance or anything like that. So, you know, I didn't have any cool shit, like cool clothes or cool sneakers or cool video game systems like all my friends had. Um, so I had to work. So, you know, I had a paper route when I was in like, you know, third grade. And, you know, I always worked jobs. I used to like, you know, rake leaves and shovel snow and, you know, I valley park cars, delivered pizzas, worked in an ice cream shop, tutored, whatever, just to get some cash because, you know, that's the only way I could do shit. You know? Yeah. So I wasn't giving me money to do stuff. You know? That's so awesome. I think that inspired, you know, some of my entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and not being afraid to work. Yeah. What were some of the other, you said when you first started your practice, I mean, what, what do you think drove you to overcome those challenges or what, what do you think was the single biggest challenge when opening up that practice? I couldn't fail, man. Like that's, that's it. Like, I mean, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, there's still challenges, you know, like mm -hmm. to this day, like practice is 10 years old. And, you know, for me, staffing is always a big challenge. It's especially yeah. in, my, in my New York city office. It's really hard to find folks who are like motivated, <laughs> you know, have a hustle in them. Mm -hmm. Um, and believe in your vision, you know? So when you find someone like that, and I have a lot of few people that work for me that really are amazing, you know, you hold on to those people tight, man. And, you know, you do whatever you can to, you know, keep them happy and inspired, you know? But some people I've found are just uninspirable, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, that's probably my single biggest challenge as a small business owner. And that's something, you know, at the beginning, it was really, really difficult. I mean, it still is difficult, uh, but now I've set up sort of safety nets and you know ways to circumvent issues when there's staffing issues. Back then, when you only have like, two people just staff, you know, like it's hard. You know? yeah. So that's good time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always believed in the vision of my practice, and I knew it would be successful. Uh, and you know, but it, it takes time. So I had. I'm a big believer in like making sure you have like another stream of income if you're going to do something entrepreneurial. So I, being a dermatic pathologist and a dermatologist, I was working for a big office in uh, Long Island that had tons of pathology, and I was a pathologist. So I was making money doing that, 
and, which was literally the person I took over. That was her full-time job, right? I had that as my, I took over that full-time job. I had the full-time job of setting up my practice. And then that, and at some point I started my own lab. So I basically had three full-time jobs. Mm. Uh, but that's, I, I, I like that, you know, like I like that. It also makes taking a risk less stressful, right? Cause you know, like even if like you're not making money, at least you're not going broke because it's one source of income can sort of fund or float another one until that takes off. Sure. What, what did, so from your first office to opening the, the second, what did that expansion look like? How did you know when uh, you were ready to, to open a second? Cause I, I think a lot of uh, business owners have a hard time realizing, okay, when do I need to expand? Some want to grow as fast as possible. Others want to stay as lean as long as they can. What did that expansion process look like for you? How did you kind of know when, all right, it, it's time. So my main office is in New York City and we were, my wife and I, we had two kids and we were committed to just staying in the city and raising our kids in the city. And you know, we were actually in contract to buy a bigger apartment, going to do a renovation. Um, and my wife was three months pregnant with our third. We had no idea. And this was in like 2010. And at the, it was sort of the end of 2010. And then I, re, I realized there's no way I can have three kids in New York City. It's just, it's just too expensive, you know, like with private schools and, you know, just space. And I'm really averse to like clutter. So I, you know, I, and just with two kids, the apartments are filled with like shit all over the place. <laughs> it was like really stressful. So I was like, you know, at that point, our third on the way, I knew it was time to move. So we moved out to Long Island at that point. And uh, for a while I was commuting to the city. I, mean, I still do. Uh, but my wife, she's a dentist. And, you know, she was getting to the point in her career where she wanted to hang up her own shingle also and like, you know, start her own practice. So she really encouraged me to like, you know, you should open up a practice too. You know, we can have a practice together. And uh, so I basically, I bought a building here in Long Island, pretty close to our home. And I needed space. So for the other part of what I do is dramatic pathology, I needed physical space to build a lab so that my slides, the biopsy specimens could get processed. There's like a lot of equipment that's involved with that. So I thought, okay, cool. So I, you know, maybe we'll buy space, you'll open a practice, I'll open a practice, but I really have space for my lab. Um, so that's kind of what motivated that. It's, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think it's good to stay lean. You know, it's added like an extra element of expense of having another practice. And the, the physical space is very expensive. Staffing other offices is very expensive. And I'm only here in this office. I only see patients for seven hours a week here. Mm. Oh, wow. uh, so I do a four-hour session on Thursdays and a three-hour session on Mondays. Mondays I'm in both offices. So it's really the most underutilized. It's a beautiful office. It's the most underutilized doctor's office probably in the world. Mm. And I'm being serious when I say that. Um, but for me, having my visit, my lab here, and now I do all my media stuff here. We have a podcast studio here. So I kind of used it, you know, for those purposes. Um, but you know, really my most, the times where my, I think my business was the most profitable was when it was just my New York city office. Uh, just cause it was, it was a small space. I optimized it. It was, you know, it was generating revenue every day, you know, whether I was there or not. Um, I don't have any regrets opening the second space, but I, I think if you talk to a lot of small business owners that expand, it's, there's really no need to expand. And now like I realize now, like for me, expansion, and kind of when I was going through that period in 2017, trying to figure out what my next move is, 
I feel like I already made it to like the top of the food chain as a dermatologist. And my goal is not expanding and having other practices. That really has like no value to me, um, no personal value. Like what brings value to me at this point? Yeah, I love seeing my patients and I love what I do, but I don't need to do any more of that. Like I'm already maxed out in that part of my life. Like for me now, what brings value to me is trying to touch other people. You know, when I get a DM from a 13-year-old kid or a 16-year-old, actually from like a kid who's about to go to college, and he tells me he's the first kid in his family that's going to college and, you know, he wants to be a doctor. And he also thought being a doctor was just so like nerdy and boring, but he sees like stuff that I do and you know, he sees that being a doctor can be cool and fun. Like that's fucking awesome. You know, that's the stuff that it really gets me going. You know, like, and, and I want more of that. You know, yeah. so that's kind of what pushes what I'm doing now. And the truth is, had I not had the space here in Long Island, it would have be been more difficult to do that. But now I, you know, I can have a podcast studio. I can have a full time videographer that works for me. I can have a camera set up. You know, I can do stuff like this just because I have the space to do it. And my my practice here is doing very well, also. You know, so. That's all good too, but I don't want to work more. I can't, I can't work more as a dermatologist. You know? I really don't have any desire to. And I also really don't love managing other professionals. You know, and I learned that along the way. And you know, you learn things when you run a business. You know, and I know for me, that's not something I love doing. You know, like I love running my business and I love working with other people, but it's hard for me to manage someone who's on like the, basically the same playing field as me, like being another doctor in the office. Okay. Uh, because you know, there's like a way that you know. I think I'm really, really good at what I do, and um, I have a very set way of doing things that I think is the best for my patients. I'm not saying there's not another right way to do stuff, but you know, it's just it's my baby, it's my practice, it's my name on the wall, and like you know, I'm very protective of that. And you know, it's hard to you know, maintain that culture when there's other cooks in the kitchen. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, yeah. 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 It's yeah. Yeah. I said you found your formula. So it's, it's yeah, working. Exactly. Not, not broke. <laughs> yeah. And it's good that you were, you were self-aware and realized that. And now you can, you can coach other people and inspire other people to kind of take the same road you, you did. Uh, I was yeah. gonna, what, uh, what drew you, obviously your mom was a big influence becoming a doctor, but is there anything that drew you to dermatology or how'd you kind of land on that path? Yeah. It's a good question, man. Um, so I, there's something called a Howard Hughes Fellowship, which is like this, uh, it's like this pretty prestigious research fellowship at med school. And you take a year off to do it. And so I took a year, I applied for it, and I was fortunate enough to get one. And I took a year off between my second and third year of medical school to do research. It happened to be skin cancer research. Okay. And that's what turned me on to dermatology. Um, interesting enough, the summer before that, I worked with a dermatopathologist, which is the other thing that I do. And I thought that was pretty cool too. So, you know, but in my, I guess in my, my summer between first and second year, I did some dermatology stuff. I took that year off and did dermatology research. So I, going into my third year, which is like the clinical years where you do rotations, I, I knew I wanted to do dermatology. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do you see any uh, like, like big problems today with, with skin, skin cancer or anything that, or any problems across the board that people don't really realize, I guess? Yeah, I think people are pretty... They realize it. I mean, I'm you know, younger people are getting skin cancers just because everyone's a lot, not everyone, but a lot of people are going with the tanning boots and the slime, which is like the worst thing you can do for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Lots of people are to 20s that have cancers, which is crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think people know that sun is bad for them. It's like, I mean, it's like the whole vaping thing, right? Like, if someone's blowing a fucking cloud of smoke out, like, 
you know that's intrinsically it has to be bad for you, right? It's not <laughs> yeah. like it can't be good for you. Right. I mean, obviously all the stuff that's coming out now with like, you know, popcorn lung and all the pulmonary problems people are having from vaping. Um, but it's the same sort of thing. Like, you know, like sitting in the sun or going in tangy with that shit's fucking bad for you. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. There's nothing good that's gonna come of that, you know, and I think people realize that now. I mean they realize it then too, going into it, but now like when their friend has a skin cancer or they're hearing of someone something bad happening, then you know, it sort of it, it, uh, it puts the brakes on, you know, doing something that's not really great for you. Mm-hmm. So I think the awareness was there, but now it's like in your face there. Yeah. People are on I mean, people are much better about sunscreen and stuff now, but yeah, I mean, this skin cancer is, it's, it's, uh, it's huge, man. I mean, there's just, there's just tons of it. Particularly like some of your places like Florida and, you know, yeah. Uh, the West Coast and stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's funny you bring up the, the tanning salons. I had a patient last week, and she's like, yeah, I know that's so bad for you, so I, I stick to the fake tan stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's actually not as bad. I mean, it's not great for you, but, you know. I was like, just be wary of all of it. Let, let's just work on that. Um, do you ever, or, or have you ever incorporated, like, nutrition with regards to uh, skin issues, or have you studied anything with uh, – food and skin related things is there a relation yeah that's a that's another good question man um so i personally like one of the transformations that i had was a pretty intense fitness transformation and okay. you know around um 2012 i my brother-in-law who was in tremendous shape at one point in his life like just fucking ripped and jacked in his 20s it was thanksgiving and we we're sitting at my mother-in-law's house and, you know i had a scotch like sitting on my belly you know <laughs> Uh, he had a beer sitting on his belly. He looked over at me and he's like, dude, like, what happened to us, man? And I was never in great shape, man. To be honest, I was always like a skinny, fat, out of shape guy growing up. I always looked skinny. Like, no one would ever say that I was like, fat. But, you know, I, was, I never wanted to have my shirt off because I had gut moves, you know? And, you know, in 2012, we made a bet. Like, you know, so he said, okay, by Memorial Day, let's see who's going to get into the best shape. And I was 196 pounds, 20 one percent body fat i was like just flabby you know and uh, i got all the way and i like I, i'm a nut when it comes to stuff like this i got all the way down to like 154 pounds eight percent body fat by memorial day mm. but i learned a lot yeah so i looked like i was dying basically you know so like people would like see me like oh man you look great you lost all this weight but then they'd ask my buddy dude like what the fuck is wrong with you man? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but during that process i actually learned a lot about nutrition and i'm actually obsessed with like, fitness and nutrition now like now i'm like 190, like 10, 11%, you know, and I can, you know, I'm, I've like, I've been dialed in, you know, so I've done like, I've read all these books about nutrition and, you know, I did intermittent fasting for a while and, you know, every variant of like, you know, carb cycling and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, like, you know, sure. that you read about, you know, so I'm a big believer in, with skin stuff, because I get asked this a lot for like, you know, magazines, like what's the best diet. Okay. And the truth is, I think most people eat, don't eat enough protein. Like everything's protein in your body. Like collagen is protein, skin's made of protein. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, maintaining an adequate amount of protein in your diet. Obviously, like the stuff that's, you know, antioxidants in your diet, I think are important just for your general well-being. Um, you know, just to, it's all common sense stuff at the end of the day, but it's really implementing that is where the challenge is. So I'm also a big believer in like weighing your food and like knowing, being able to kind of like figure out what your portions exactly are. And I did that for years, man, you know, so I would literally in my, my fitness pal app, I would like put in every single thing I ate, I'd weigh my food, I knew exactly how much it was and really dialed in my macros so that I know, like now I can 
I don't, I'm not as crazy about it because I, I kind of know, you know, what is in like a plate of food. Um, but you have to kind of go through the exercise of being fanatical about something, yeah, in order to really get the knowledge to know it what to put it in your body. You know? Right on. Yeah, that's that's a sweet transformation. That's a lot of weight too. So good on you. Yeah. But yeah, I'm gonna. I ask, uh, I'll say I ask because I'm our nutrition coach at our clinic. So um, yeah. I do rehab and nutrition coaching. So I, I'm always, how do you incorporate the food? Yeah. Yeah. So I saw that on your Instagram page. Man. Yes. That's cool. Yeah. It's amazing. So it's funny because I always say like now, like when I talk to people, it's like, you know, what, what, what is your like goal? Like, what are you trying to accomplish with this? And I'm always like, well, all right, well, picture Deepak Chopra meets Sanjay Gupta meets The Rock. Like that's I'm I'm in that in that space somewhere. So I'm right now like I'm, 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 we're gonna do a lot of Instagram stuff. It's the road to 200. I'm like 190. I already get to like 200 diesel. Okay. So, so like I'm eating more calories and like you know really we're gonna document that journey. Man. Nice. That's awesome. So then I can be known as the doc. But that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna ask uh, just you putting out content every single day. Is that just uh? Like, do you plan that out ahead of time, or is it just whatever you feel like posting that day? Is it kind of kind of like that? Like, do you plan any of that uh, stuff out, or? Yeah. So, but, but my posts now have gotten pretty sophisticated. So they're all video posts, and almost everything is an IGTV post, which is a longer format. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we really plan it out. So we'll like, so for instance, like we're doing this question answer thing where people will DM me a question, and I'll answer it, and then we make sort of these fusion videos. I had a couple of posts with that this past mm -hmm. weekend. Yeah. So we just, that's a pretty cool. Someone from Kenya sent me a DM uh, with a question about vitiligo and I recorded the response to it on my way back from New York City and we're posting that tomorrow. You know, so my videographer works for me full time. He's right here right now recording all this stuff. And you know, we'll make a post out of this. We're always creating, like, we're always recording stuff to create content. Mm -hmm. And then we'll find out, okay, well, well, let's do that question answer tomorrow. There's some other stuff we recorded like last week and, you know, we're, we, we're always sitting on content, but just editing it down and like planning what we're going to post that week. You know, there is some planning that goes into it for sure. Mm -hmm. We also do a lot of those, we do like a pimple popper video, like every week, you know, like that Dr. Pimple Popper stuff. But that's honestly, that's actually growing my entire social media presence. So mm -hmm. now I think I'm like 18,000 YouTube subscribers now, all, all literally from those pimple popping videos. And then from that, like, you know, videos that have like 700,000 views, 500,000 views. And then from that content, people spill over into my other stuff. Like, oh, look, what's this podcast about? Or what's this other stuff about? Mm -hmm. And same with my Instagram. Like, the posts that have gotten the most views are like just little cis posts. I like a one that has like, I think, like 350,000 views. I watched them. <laughs> you know? I saw them the other night. I was like, man, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy because, you know, it's actually, I never watched those videos and they really didn't appeal to me personally very much. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's like, a, it's a, there's a huge audience for that stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're having a lot of fun making them. So, you know, we, we, we record those all the time and then we'll make one of those, we'll edit those videos down like once a week and, you know, just figure out okay, how exactly we're going to edit it. And, you know, now, like, you know, my videographer has been with me a while. He kind of knows what I like in terms of music and not with the edits and stuff. But yeah, no, there's a lot of planning that goes into it, man. Because if you're going to post every day, like I'm going to Scottsdale this weekend for a guy's golf trip. So I'll be gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But we already discussed it. That I need to have posts for each of those days because I post every day. Mm -hmm. The whole 
plan that out and figure out exactly how we're going to lay everything out. And then I started TikTok accounts. We need to make content for that. Yes, so yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. It's like a huge, huge uh, amount of time goes into it. Yeah. When did you uh, when did you start the podcast? And how how much time you spent on that currently? You want to talk a little bit about that and how you kind of developed that? Totally. Yes, we post a podcast once every three weeks. Um, I started a podcast uh, a little over a year ago. It's almost maybe a year and a couple of weeks ago. The first, pod, first podcast was my mom, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, but now you know, we've recorded 22 podcasts. They're, we record a 23rd, so they come out a week from Thursday. And you know, the reason why we do it every three weeks is there's a lot that goes into the podcast, terms of the editing, the sound editing, and stuff like that. So now I basically have a professional podcast studio with like the mics and we record the audio on a separate track. This video stuff that goes into it. I have three cameras for the for the video, and we post we put the video to YouTube, to IGTV, and Facebook. The podcast goes on iTunes, Spotify, you know, SoundCloud. Um, so yeah, it's it's awesome. I really that, that's probably the favorite thing that mm. we do. I love that because I love like kind of like you guys like sort of diving into what makes someone tick. Yeah. And you say, you say you bring a lot of entrepreneurs onto that podcast. Is there a specific type of person you're looking for usually or just anybody? Yeah, else? for me, it's really anyone who inspires me, who's a story that inspires me. So the first one was with my mom. I think my second one was with a uh, like college football. Okay. Had a bunch of men in school and it was like this ball and knocker. Um, I one was like a bartender from a restaurant. I eat it all the time. He's a career New York City bartender. He's a great guy. Uh, Eric Coleman was a professional football player. who's got an amazing story. He was, he was uh, a linebacker or safety for, for the Jets. Um, and so, you know, he, he's got a great story. Uh, it's, it's various. You know, some entrepreneurs on there. My last podcast was with the CEO of Costa Bella Journal, which is luxury, it's a luxury lingerie brand. And he's got a great okay. story. It's all kind of different stuff, yeah. Nice, that's cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I kind of went back to a little more like marketing, all your content. So we uh, kind of study people that we might find on Instagram, see what they're doing, what their growth kind of is. And we've noticed like over the last few days, you've had a ton of growth on your Instagram. And just curious, can you attribute it to one thing? Is it just being on every platform? Did you change something recently? We're like, whoa this is this is working um or is it again just every uh platform oh hold on man i lost it like you froze right there oh you're good in the middle um, somewhere so uh, yeah so we um that's not our sole focus but you know trying to get reach traction so we study yeah. what people are doing and what kind of growth they might have week by week or every two weeks and we noticed in the last few days you had pretty exponential growth on your instagram yeah. Um, was there something specific you changed up? Uh, can you attribute that to just being on every platform, the YouTube, uh, Instagram, the LinkedIn, or was there something specific recently that you changed where it's like, oh, let me try this. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that's kind of a winner there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's weird. So I guess some of the cis videos that I have, I think they end up on the main search page. Mm. So like when someone goes to like that main page, and I've had a few like my entrepreneurial posts, that have gone on there have been like reposted on these like big entrepreneur pages. Okay. Um, a lot of that like correlates to like huge, I mean huge spikes, like you know, like literally like twenty thousand in like you know a couple of days, yeah. you know, which is pretty cool. Um, but then there's a lot of fall off too. So like there'll be a lot of people that will follow you, and then there's like literally a big retraction. Okay. Um, mm. 
Yeah, yeah. So I find it kind of goes, it goes like this, you know, like it's, but I don't know. I really don't know. You know, I think hashtags are so important. So anytime I post something with Vitiligo, I always get a lot of followers after that. Um, I think there's a lot of people that just search hashtag Vitiligo. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, the kid sent me the message from Kenya. He doesn't even follow me, but he must have found it through some. I mean, he found the post somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, That's how I. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Okay. Is that right? What was the hashtag? Yeah. I think it was through uh, the. I think I searched like podcast or something. And you came up well, one of the ones I was searching that we use. That's that's how I found you. I was just scrolling uh, through and saw you. And yeah, so, I mean, who know, who knows like, what people are interested in, right? I tell you, for my YouTube channel, it is a thousand percent my sis videos. I mean, that's grown my whole account. Like it's it's amazing. Like you know, every time I post a video, I normally get like two thousand more subscribers. Um, <laughs> Love I think it. In the last what a couple months, yeah, we've got like ten thousand subscribers on YouTube. 3,000 every two weeks. 3,000 every two weeks. Yeah, we're just we and, and it's pretty, yeah. The more you get, but the faster you grow, it, it's like this really strange phenomenon because there's more people are watching your shit. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's pretty crazy then. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we it's noticed fun. an influx when we started doing more stories, like camera on us, like more, yeah. you know, like of our face. Cause we we're like, all right, people like to see who's doing it. Um, yeah. that's one thing we've noticed where like you do more stories, more FaceTime, and then that helps kind of with traction. So, but yeah, yeah, we were just kind of curious. Like to Gary, was, I'm sorry, man. Uh, oh, no, sorry. Yeah. One of the things that Gary always says is, is like, you know, just keep post content more is better, man. You know? Mm-hmm. So if we post once a day. I mean, some people post three or four times a day, you know, I just don't have enough content to support that. Um, and also I'm like very particular about the content that we post. So I, I'd my videographer kind of beats me up about it, but I, I, I hate memes. Like they just, I don't know, they just drive me crazy. And I feel like it's a cheap form of content. And I'm literally sitting on so many memes right now. But I, in my mind, it's like, why post that when I could post like a video, you know, which sure. is like so much better. Yeah. You know? But I can't, I don't have four videos to post a day. It just takes up too much time. Yeah. So uh, what's, you said you're writing a book. What's the book about? Kind of just life of journey or more business. Yeah, it kind of, it's sort of like a self empowerment book using my own personal little the many successes I've had in my life, and you know, kind of just to illustrate that if I can do it, anybody can. Um, which I, honestly, it's like I really am a firm believer in that. Um, so, like I said, I've had some like you know, like what my fitness journey. Like people look at me now, they're like, "Oh, you've been like jacked and in good shape your whole life," you know. And that's just honestly not the case. I have. <laughs> absolute worst genetics. I don't even have any fucking pictures of me when I was out of shape because I would never want to be a picture with my shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, but it's funny, my wife always jokes now that like, I can't keep a shirt on. You can't, I can't keep the shirt on. You know? <laughs> uh, but like, you know, but, but really, honestly, that's a bit of, that to me is like, if I can get in shape, anybody can get in shape. I mean, anybody can. It's just a matter of like having the discipline to do it. I'm like, you know, that, just grind it out like day after day, week after week, month after month. And then you look at yourself in the mirror like years later, like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. I've already started working out with my trainer, I still work out with who's an amazing guy. He's on one of my podcasts. He's actually the strength coach for the for the G League team for the New York for the for the Brooklyn Nets. And he works oh, with yeah. nice. He's like working with like, you know, like KD and Kyrie and shit like that now, which is amazing. That's yeah. awesome. But when I started working out with the trainer of Equinox in my town, and uh, I see he's like, dude, look, what's your goal? And like, you know, I was in sad shape, man. I was in really bad shape, you know, like really flabby. And I said to him, I was like, dude, I want to get jacked. Like, that's my goal. 
And uh, he's like, all right, I'm using a straight face. Like, it's going to take you three to five years to get there. And I said, let's do it, man. And like, look, he's still my trainer, you know? That's so cool. Yeah. That's yeah. a good trainer giving it to you up front. Like, hey, this, yeah, that was like, this no is bullshit. the real deal. Yeah. Yeah, but I think in that first six months when he saw how insane I was, he was like, all right, yeah, I think this guy's going to do it. And he's, he's, he's got a great line. He's like, dude, like, you make me, you make me look good. You know, it's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. information you have. Right. Uh, so early you said the writing, when you started writing the book, you found it very therapeutic uh, yeah. in a sense. Was writing something you have been doing for a long time uh, before the book or did it kind of start when you just had the book idea? Because uh, I know we both write for a lot of therapeutic reasons. It helps with a right. lot of things. So was that a practice you started a while back or how did the writing come to be? Yeah, it's a, that's another good thing. I don't have the time in the day to like actually sit down and write, you know, I just don't. There's just so many fucking moving parts and I have three kids and I'm married, you know, and I have like two practices and I'm doing all the social media stuff. So for a long time now, so I've been doing some stuff now on like TV, like you know, CBS, NBC and some other stuff. And I have a publicist now. And like, you know, one of the things that everyone says at this stage is like, okay, you know, like where, where's the book? Like, you know, like you kind of need a book. So for about like six or seven months, I'm like, yeah, I gotta write a fucking book. I gotta write a book. I gotta write a book. And then finally, I realized that it's just not gonna like I'm not gonna be able to just sit down and write a book. So I actually reached out to Gary Vee's ghostwriter, you know, the woman that helped him write his books, mm. and I said, listen, like I just don't have the time to write a book, but I need the like, help writing a book. So she, I'm working with a co-author. And it's actually pretty cool. Like we actually talk for like three hours. He lives in San Francisco, but we like will talk for like literally an hour and a half sessions. We do that three times a week. And I'm in my car a lot. So I'm commuting from New York City to Long Island. There's a lot of traffic or vice versa. So we'll just talk and everything is recorded and transcribed. And then from that, we create content for the book. Um, so we're really like, right now, we're just like literally just like talking about a survey of my life. And, you know, that's been the really therapeutic part. It's like, you know, we have to go back and like, deeply dive into events that made you who you are like really inform the person that you are now and really thinking about it and it's, it's pretty awesome it's like a pretty awesome process um but I, I couldn't do it without the help of like someone else just you know it, a, it would probably just never get done um and it's sort of like you know for me like working out like i know i'm going to work out four times a week and i'm a trainer when i work out because one, it makes me accountable to the workouts. And it's the same thing with like posting to Instagram like every day. I'm working out four times a week. I don't, even if I went out to like three in the morning, it was face fun. I'm getting up at 5.30 to work out. Like that's, I love it. it's a non-negotiable thing. Like I'm going to do it. It's the same thing with like my writer, like, I, like you know, my co-author. I know we're going to do this. And like, no matter what, I'm doing that. And that's how it's going to get done, you know? That's cool. So I was going to ask you as well. Um, you're obviously a, 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 a acclaimed doctor in New York. Like you, you, you've made lists. You're, you're recognized as a top doctor besides like grinding your ass off. Cause you've always had that work ethic. Is there anything that you think that you've done differently to kind of separate yourself into a, like a prestigious category such as that? Cause like you said, it's a very competitive space, especially in New York city. Like how do you like, is there anything like the way you interacted with patients or anything that you did differently or add your little, your own sauce to the formula in terms of doing that? Anything that you can think of? Yeah, I think like when I first started my office, like the main thing for me was being like very accessible to my 
patients and treating all the patients like they were family or loved one. You know, so okay. one of the things, like one of these books that I read, is, you know, it's a book called Traction. And one of the, one of the, like the concepts of the book is it's very important for you to define personal and professional core values. And these, that's something that, you know, I always did these things before I defined exactly what they were to me. Um, but one of the things for me was like being very caring and compassionate. Like my personal emails on my business card. My patients can email me. Uh, I'm like super accessible. And I was always like that from the very beginning of my practice. And, uh, you know, it was really, I had no patients in the beginning, man. So I could spend an hour with a patient, you know, and it was like an experience that people just didn't have. Um, but although I can't do that to that extent now, I think my patients have a very uh, personalized experience when they come to see me. Um, and I'm also like being a pathologist, I'm kind of like a doctor's doctor. So like, I do both things and I'll see patients, but I also look at the cells under the microscope. And a lot of times, like I'm the last stop on the train, there'll be like a patient with like four dermatologists or you know, four other doctors and they can't really figure out what's going on. But being a pathologist kind of helps me put the puzzle together. Mm. Um, you know, so the, the, like little things like that. A lot of them, my whole practice was built by word of mouth. You know, experiences by experiences patients have had, and then they were for their friends or loved ones. And you know, it slowly grew, but it was a really organic growth, um, which is sustainable. You know, so like it's, you know, folks kind of know who I am because I've been there for a decade, but they also know, you know, I saw them when they were kids and now they're adults, or I saw them, I see whole families, I see the parents and the grandparents. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think, I don't know, I, listen, I, and I think I'm a pretty good doctor. Like, I think I, I have a, a lot of with being a doctor, you can, it's very easy to kind of um, lose the forest for the trees. Like you get stuck in some like minor detail and like you, you don't see the big picture. And I think that's something I've always been pretty good at is like seeing the big picture with a patient and like, you know, kind of just being able to figure out what the fundamental process is. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that this is millions of amazing doctors, you know, but I think that's like the X factor that separates an amazing doctor from you know a clinic from you know a regular doctor i guess you know yeah that's good i like that but you know going back to like the core values thing so you know care and compassion is really important um so my core values are care and compassion integrity attention to detail and accountability those four things and those are my four core values professionally and personally that's what really resonates with me the most but that really brings that also resonates you know that's what's important to me as an individual as a friend as a father as a husband uh, as a parent, um, but you know, in work, that's what's important to me with my patients, right? I treat my patients with a tremendous amount of care and compassion, having integrity, you know, like kind of giving them honest advice. I mean, I'll turn more. I do a lot of cosmetic procedures, and I'll turn more patients away than I'll than I'll treat. You know, I'll, you know, I'll be honest and say, hey, I don't think that's going to look good. You know, mm. um, because you know, I think that's having integrity, right? Um, accountability is really important, I think, and you know, it's, that's. We all make mistakes, well, humanly, we all make mistakes, but being accountable to those mistakes and saying, hey, you know what, I fucked up, and implementing a very specific personal fix so that the same mistake doesn't keep happening over and over and over again, I think is something that's really important. It's something that, you know, like everyone should should be doing, aside from, like, you know, self-awareness and checking yourself, and attention to detail, man. You know, that's just kind of obvious, but, you know, attention to detail to me, and I think this is also maybe something that answers the question that you just asked me, is like you look at any and look, just take a look at the NBA, right? These are all incredibly elite athletes that are in the NBA, right? But then there's guys like LeBron, like Kyrie, like Katie, like Michael Jordan, you know, guys who were in the sea of elite people, 
but we're like elite amongst the elite, Kobe. And the reason why is like you read these stories about Kobe and like, you know, he had a shitty game where he like, you know, missed a bunch of three pointers or free throws. They'll land in the next city at like two in the morning. And the first thing he does is like find the fucking gym and he just mm. rides for like an hour or two working on whatever didn't go well in the game before. Or he also has this big thing where uh, it's a video on YouTube, I don't know if you guys have seen it about separation, where he'll get up three hours earlier than everybody else and get his first practice at like 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then he'll do another practice from like 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Then he'll do another round of practice from like 8 a.m. Whereas most people are just doing like one session. So he's like, yeah, over the course of years and years, I'm practicing three times as much as everybody else. Mm. And paying attention to the finest of details and refining those details. And that's why he's fucking Kobe Bryant, you know? I mean, it's not that he has a God-given gift. I mean, obviously, he has a God-given gift. But all those guys in the NBA have a God-given gift. They're all incredibly elite athletes at the highest level of, you know, anybody. But it's the guys that have that much talent and but put that much work in or that attentive to detail. That's what makes it like the Hall of Fame, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I feel I am with my patients. It's going to be very attentive to the finest details, you know, like seeing the big picture, but paying, you know, being really paying attention to the details at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it. Yeah. So, Sounds like you got, we call it the special sauce in our office. Like you got to have the special sauce. You just want to love on your people. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that was huge. You said you'd actually turn people away and, and that's, you know, that's your integrity speaking. Um, I know uh, you got family time and stuff. I don't want to keep it too late. I do have one more question. Uh, Tim, you got, any more questions for, uh, for Doc here? I'm, I'm good for now. All right. I, I did want to know in, in one sentence or less, when, when you're gone, when it's all said and done, uh, what do you want people to say about you? Yeah, you know, it's um, – I love that question because a lot of what I'm doing now is it's to build a legacy. You know, it's for my kids. Like they can look back and say, oh, man, my dad, he did some cool shit. That was a good dude. Um, you know, I just want people to know me as a guy who cared about people and did the best he could to spread positivity, you know, because yeah. that, that really is what it's all about for me. That's Good. cool. Uh, Dr. McGill, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Like I said, I know you, you got little ones at home, you got a long drive, you've been hustling since 530. So we really do appreciate it. Hey man, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, man. Best of luck to you guys. Man. I, I, I think, uh, you guys have a lot of success in the future. All right, really appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a good night, guys. All right, you as well.